a cordial abduction with talk about ransom. <laughs> a cordial abduction. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. I could have nobody could put it better than that. A cordial abduction is exactly right. Hello, hello, welcome to No Script, the podcast, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning back in. It's great to be able to talk about plays and to talk about plays of all shapes and sizes across multiple genres. And we're pinging around to another whole genre for us with this one. Well, you said shapes and sizes. We're pinging along to another genre, another time, and another size of play, too, (laughs) which is a a substantial note about this play. Uh, And, and of course, we'll talk about all that when we get there. But we're, we're on the precipice right now. It does it sort of feels like we're about to go into a different season of the podcast, which is good because that that's just actually true. This is the last play of uh, like normal time for about a month because we it's are about true. to head into our season by season tradition of a themed month. So it's just about to be April, and in April we are going to be discussing four plays that all have some sort of connecting glue. And we've been uh, going on for a while about what that is, but just to reveal it one more time. Yes, we are going to be going into a month that we are sticking with our alliterativeness, alliterativeness, alliterativeness. and calling it alliterativeness. <laughs> 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 whatever, whatever the right phraseology is, and calling it Master's Month. Master's Month, <laughs> which is, uh, we will... of course, we're talking about four Greek plays, right? You could have guessed that if you uh, if right. you haven't been with us for a few episodes, you would have just known as soon as we said Master's Month because that's so obvious and clear <laughs> and well titled. Well, okay, so it's not, <laughs> but it, it's fine. It's four Greek plays, two comedies, two tragedies, three more normal plays, one super weird one. We're excited about it. I hope you are too. You really could start Masters Month this this month though, this episode because today is one of the, we're talking about one of the great theater masters too to just hard turn back to what our episode today is about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and yeah, it's it's a it's a great lead into it. We'll we'll kind of jump back what is probably 120ish, 120 some years to the great playwright uh Bernard Shaw. Um full name George Bernard Shaw, but I I learned recently he insisted that he, on being called Bernard Shaw. Yeah, That's yeah, what they say. You- yeah. So uh, anyway, th- there you go. We're, we're talking about Shaw today. I don't have we talked about Shaw on the, on the Shaw show. Shaw is at all? a new playwright to the podcast. Just look, truthfully, we're intimidated. That's it. That's it. I mean, it's yeah. Into season six, we've been intimidated, but it's time. It's time to take <laughs> on one of the masters of literature of all time, and specifically of dramatic literature, specifically of Western dramatic literature. Bernard Shaw and his great. We've been saying novel of a play. That's kind of how Jackson and I would talk about it. This is a reference back to what I said at the beginning about size of play because this is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly long play (laughs) called 
<laughs> man and Superman. Yes, we're talking about Man and Superman today, which, if any, as we've said, if any of you have read it, it's a, it's a long play. You've probably only read it, although recently we'll get to the context eventually. There's been a couple notable productions, but it is a play that is often read and less often produced, given its length and a couple of significant challenges in the play. So I'm excited to get to have the conversation around what is essentially, I, I think, I, I think even even in the best of terms, it is a piece of literature. There is some really beautiful writing in it, really beautiful, just even down to the stage directions. Yeah, incredibly poetic, incredibly um, philosophically rich, even though many of the ideas are clearly a product of more than 100 years ago. The, the, the richness, the, the profound way in which Shaw is able to implement his philosophical ideas, his sometimes bizarre philosophical ideas, into drama, into humanity, is it's incredible. It's what makes Shaw Shaw. Absolutely. So before we dive into that philosophy and and enlightenmentness and all the things that make Shaw what Shaw is, I do want to take just a second and thank all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. Thank you all so much for making the choice to be a part of keeping No Script going. Uh, as you all know, we love getting to do this podcast. We love getting to have these conversations with each other and all of you out there in podcast land. And uh, the patrons over on patreon.com slash No Script Podcast make that happen. There are a number of fees associated with the show, whether it's hosting or scripts or the amount of time we spend on the show in general. They all help us out enormously with that. So if you're looking for a way to help out the show and become a part of the No Script community in 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 a, a deeper way, perhaps, you can head on over to patreon.com slash script podcast. And over there, you'll find a number of different tiers of membership. The lowest one is just $1, which is $12 over the course of the year. You get access to patron-only posts. You get access to producer credit at, at given Patreon tiers. So... It's a great way to help out the show. We hope you'll consider heading over to there. Thank you to all of our patrons, and we will see you at patreon.com slash podcast. And now, back to the script. Here we go. All right. George Bernard Shaw, born 1856, died in 1950. So he's at one of those really interesting folks that comes about at the turn of the 20th century. In fact, if you look at his life, he almost split the 19th and 20th centuries uh, right on, right? 1856 to 1950. Uh, born in Dublin, did a lot of his career and life in London. Um, so we call him an Irish playwright, but he was really a playwright of the London theater for more than 60 plays he wrote. I mean, a, a huge library of plays. Many of them are not done by hardly anyone at all because truthfully, they're just not that great. But some of them are considered <laughs> among the masterworks of the the British stage. I mean, <laughs> look, Whoa. I had to be blunt about it. It's just, it's the reality of it. And the folks in in the UK will often cite Shaw as like the second best playwright of their country besides Shakespeare. So I mean, yeah. this, this is a major major fellow. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1925, just kind of for his body of work was generally why it was awarded. He's a really political writer. Um, he he sort of famously was part of the Fabian Society, a democratic socialist society, until he sort of uh, disavowed the Fabian Society in the last 30 years of his life. Um, 
his particular style of playwriting did not really go on to found like a specific school of of plays and dramatic literature that we can like track really well through the next 120 years or so of his, of of the world i guess if he was died in 1950 it'd be more like 70 years um but his theater is sometimes called the theater of ideas um and that's sort of in contrast to this world of theater that he was kind of opposing, um, which was all these kind of froofy 19th century melodramas that really occupied the stage at the time. And he came out with a theater that in his mind was about something, um, had philosophy, politics, debate at the center of what was going on, edification as one of the things that theater was supposed to do for the audience. The great director Peter Hall calls him the great soapbox writer. That's what he calls George Bernard Shaw, which I think is awesome and definitely true of this play. Um, George Bernard Shaw was heavily influenced by Ibsen. You can see that, um, especially in some of his great, great female characters. There's one of them in this play that seems like she is a direct descendant of folks like Nora and uh, Hedda Gabler and such. Sometimes the the writer Tom Stoppard, obviously a great playwright in his own right, is kind of considered like if you were looking for a, a more modern example of a playwright like George Bernard Shaw, you might look at somebody like Tom Stoppard, right? Witty, intelligent plays, really deep plays that are full of philosophy, full of politics, full of references that go over your head sometimes, references that land sometimes. There's really quick writing, really, really wordy. Um, so if you don't know Shaw at all, think like 19, you know, he did a lot of his writing between like 1890 and 1920 or so. So think like that era Tom Stoppard, basically. Man and Superman was written in 1903, didn't uh, open until 1905 at the Royal Court Theater. However, there's really, there's like three different iterations of the play, or it's not even versions, like three different scripts, basically, whole cloth, because the play famously includes a third act, which is very much separate from the rest of the play in tone, in content, in setting. It's the famous Don Juan in Hell act. And so you can have you can do the whole play, Man and Superman, all the acts, including the very, very lengthy third act, Don Juan in Hell. Or you can do Man and Superman, the play from Act 1 all the way to the end, without the third act, Don Juan in Hell, which is something a lot of theaters choose to do for length, for all, you know, for its weird content, for its sort of stagnant debating, basically, that occupies the whole the act. So that's like a second version of the script. Or lots of theaters will just do the third act, Don Juan in Hell. Uh, and, and that is, you know, how whatever length it is, and you just do the scene, the dream sequence where Don Juan debates the devil and the statue of his lover's father and, and all of the weird stuff that happens in that. <laughs> so there's three different versions, right? So the, the, the one that opened in 1905 was the play without the third act. And then part of the third act was staged with the rest of the play in another version in 1907, but it wasn't until 1915, a full 12 years after the play was written, that the whole thing was actually staged for the first time by the Traveling Rep Company. Um, 
it, when the play was published, okay, so one of the characters uh, has written um, the Revolutionist's Handbook and Pocket Guide or something. And he's got all these, you know, kind of highfalutin, fancy philosophical ideas, new age stuff. <laughs> and he's written a book in the play that is referenced by the other characters. And, and Bernard Shaw, being who he is, in the published version of the play, included the full 58-page handbook written by one of his characters, i.e., written by him. Um, 1946, the BBC broadcast the full play for the very first time, the thing beginning to end broadcasted. uh, was produced by the Savoy in 77, 78. Um, In 1981, for the first time, the National Theatre produced the whole thing, again, including the lengthy third act, Don Juan in Hell. Uh, 1982, there was a television version with famous Peter O'Toole in the, in the show. And then in 1996 came kind of one of the definitive versions of the play, the radio version, the audiobook version. Now we call it an audiobook version. Of course, then it was for radio. This one is the one that, have, that had Ralph Fiennes and Judy Dench, directed by uh, Sir Peter Hall. One of the definitive versions of this play that you can still listen to now in what we would call audiobook. And then 2015, the National Theater, believe it or not, did it again. They took the whole thing good on them, beginning to end. It ran more than four hours, and that was at breakneck speed. If you, wa- <laughs> if you watch the review, or not watch the reviews, but you read some of the reviews, they, that's one of the things the reviewers always say is how fast the cast talked. No breaks, very quick speech, and it still took more than four hours. I've seen reviews for versions of the show that took more than six hours. The 2015 National Theater version had Ralph Fiennes and Indira and Varna, uh, made famous in Game of Thrones and the great show, the great BBC show Luther. So they were the leading two and got very good reviews. Ralph Fiennes clearly is kind of one of the major men that plays the role of uh, Jack Tanner in the show. So that's the sweeping life of this play. It's life of length. It's life of Shaw. And now we're gonna. I'm gonna turn you over to Jack for the synopsis. Um, I, I feel pretty good about having gotten the context on this one, but Jack felt <laughs> yeah. good about the synopsis. So this is one of those rare times where we could just sort of shake hands and say good on. You. <laughs> like we're yeah, we're in alignment with our strengths on this one. We'll see. <laughs> So the play takes place in 1901-1902, so pre-World Wars, socialism is in the air, revolution is being talked about, social structures are in upheaval. That's an important context for the play. Um, the, the, the inciting incident of the play is Mr. Whitefield has died. Now, Mr. Whitefield was the father of Anne Whitefield, of, uh, oh, I forgot to write down her name, Rhonda is a sister who I think is Rhonda, who, who never appears on stage, um, but uh, Rhonda, he is married to Mrs. Whitefield and uh, everything is up in the air now because uh, both of his daughters are are coming of age. They need guardianship. They have not been married yet. And uh, this, this is in a you know, very patriarchal structure. And so uh, they need guardians to take care of them. Yeah, just to note how patriarchal it is, their mother is still alive. Their yeah, mother's still there. They need a male guardian. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so we pick up the play in Act 1. It's basically at, at, at a 
I believe kind of the 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 post will reading of 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 the will that this uh, that Mr. Whitefield has left, and we we enter the play with Roebuck Ramsden um, meeting with an Octavius Robinson. Now Octavius Robinson and his sister Violet Robinson are kind of the adopted children of Mr. Whitefield, not officially, but they've become grafted into the family. They've been caretaken. They've received some inheritance from him at his death. Roebuck Ramsden is the the kind of best friend of Mr. Whitefield, the person who he thought of as a very honorable person, very kind of uptight British type. Um, and uh, th these two are meeting. They're talking about what uh, uh, Ramsden thinks are the plans that Mr. Whitefield had for Octavius, and they were to, he believes, for Octavius to marry uh, uh, Mr. Whitefield's daughter, Anne. Octavius is in love with Anne, so uh, of course he would like nothing better. Although he's intimidated to heck about her, um, and and uh, so he's he's kind of bemoaning that a little bit. Um, but pretty quickly we learn that there is a John Tanner, who I will now uh, refer to exclusively as Jack Tanner. Um, and and this this person is not very respected by Roebuck Ramsden. He's recently written the book that Jacob mentioned at, at the beginning, this kind of socialist handbook that has uh, been of some claim of note. The book is in the room. Uh, uh, Ramsden uh, hates it, throws it in the garbage at one point. And uh, it's clear that Tanner is in the building and he comes down. They, they have a bit of a, a, a conflict against each other. Um, but what begins to uh, develop quickly is the knowledge that it's not just uh, Roebuck Ramsden who's been named Anne's guardian, but also Jack Tanner. Now, that begins to kind of have ripple effects. Uh, both both Ramsden and Tanner don't want this. Uh, Tanner is of, of roughly the same age as Anne, so to be her guardian is a little odd. We also learn throughout the play that they, they grew up together and maybe had feelings for each other at one point, but that's all long in the past now, of course. Um, so they say. So they say. Um, Roebuck uh, hates uh, Tanner, so he doesn't want to have any sort of shared <laughs> guardianship over Anne with him. Um, and then Anne enters the scene, and Anne, very quickly, it becomes apparent that she has all three of these guys, Ramsden, uh, Tanner, and Octavius, kind of wrapped around her finger. In fact, the whole family is kind of held in sway of Anne's intellect. She knows how to manipulate this whole group. And it is, in fact, she who wants dual guardianship of these two. We don't really know why at, at this point, but she manipulates them into agreeing to stay, both of them, her guardians. All the while kind of leading Octavius on a little bit, um, playing up her grief as, as uh, kind of a, a hold against his affections. That's the broad sweep of the first of the of the acts. The second act, uh, we uh, it's it's the next day, I believe. Not much time has passed. They uh, are going. Uh, there, there's cars coming into town. <laughs> They're driving cars up. Or, or Jack is driving a car up from his estate to the estate of the Whitefields. We meet a new character in Henry Straker, who is uh, Jack Tanner's chauffeur. And, uh, and driver and kind of car maintenance. Again, cars are very new in 1901 and 1902. It's a big plot point. Um, and, uh, and so uh, he's able to go quite fast between the different places. Um, and they're, they're, they're wanting to go on a drive this day. So uh, it's suggested there's a, there's a new guest coming to town, notably an American named Hector Malone. And uh, he has his own car. It's suggested that they all go driving together off to Nice in France. Um, 
that, that is a very broad sweep of that act. There's more things that happen in there. Um, there's there's more kind of manipulation, more wondering around uh, Violet. Oh, that's an important thing. I got to back up because <laughs> a very important revelation in Act 1 is that Violet, who is uh, Octavius's sister, has um, gotten into a relationship and is pregnant with with a child. Uh, she she is wearing a ring, though none of them have been to a wedding um, uh, with her. They don't know who the husband is. In fact, they don't even know that there is a husband until the last couple pages of the act. They assume that she is just pretending to have been married, but she claims at the end of the act that she is in fact married. That's an important feature of and won't <laughs> of tell them who the husband is. I am married, but yeah. I'm not going to tell you who my husband is. Yep. So Act Two continues to progress. We have uh, these characters all kind of getting together, getting ready to go on 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 a drive together. Hector Malone is this American who kind of comes into the scene, a friend of Octavius. Octavius is kind of this poet uh, and and a social butterfly. He's friends with Octavius, and uh, Octavius kind of rolls up. Uh, is is going to suggest going on this drive, uh, kind of extending the drive out to Nice um, and, and joining with them. He suggests uh, Violet join him in his car and everyone's like, oh, you don't want that. Uh, the propriety denies it. She's actually married. We don't know who it is. He's like, oh, okay. Um, and he says, well, I'll, I'll go and apologize to her because we, we were talking about that. Um, and it turns out in, in their private conversation, we find out that uh, Hector is in fact the mystery husband. All of this uh, is uh, with Anne slowly kind of uh, becoming more and more clear that she is pursuing Jack, pursuing Jack Tanner. And Tanner uh, Tanner is a, a, a revolutionary. He expounds a lot. He has a lot of big thoughts about life force and, and, and the role of marriage and, and his role as kind of an unattainable bachelor in the world (laughs) he's like a dedicated bachelor he believes strongly against the institution of marriage the attachments of romance he believes sort of in the superiority of women in that they can kind of get what they want if they get their claws into you uh you as a as a man you can sort of end up becoming a slave to a woman and he doesn't want that for himself at all so he's a professed bachelor um, but also kind of a ladies' man. He 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 gets around, um, but doesn't want the attachment of marriage. And Anne, as Jackson is saying, is revealing that she's going to try to get him to marry her. Right, right. And she she goes to the extent of like being sure that she winds up in the same car as him. Jack continues to kind of push her towards Octavius, who he knows is kind of over the moon for her. And Octavius uh, just can't. Well, really, it's Anne does not allow Octavius to to kind of uh, fall fully in love with her. He even confesses to have uh, proposed to her the night before, and she uh, kind of uh, cites her grief again as a, as her inability to marry him. And and we start to pick up the fact that she's kind of lying between a whole bunch of people. She cites her grief sometimes. Sometimes she cites her mother as the reason why they can't be together, but we find out the mother has nothing to do with it. So we begin to learn that she is manipulating all these people around her quite efficiently. Um, the drive begins. The whole family heads off to uh, the the mainland of Europe, and we hit uh, the, the third act, the infamous third act of this play. Well, yeah, I, I, the only thing I think we probably do want to say is that uh, Jack Tanner, discovering that Anne wants him to marry her, actually runs off. 
um, he and his chauffeur take off to try to escape Anne. Like, uh, he's trying to get out of there. So he he is not going to Nice. He has slipped away, basically, and is on the run from Anne, uh, trying to get out of there. So instead of going to Nice in France, we open in Spain, where he has tried to escape to, which leads us into this third act in the Sierra Nevada. Yeah, the Sierra Nevada of Spain, he and his chauffeur have kind of gotten away from from the rest of the party somehow whether it's it's right away from the estate or from a hotel the night before. They've they've gotten gotten away and they're in the Sierra Nevadas and we meet a whole new cast of characters. We meet Mendoza who is this like oh, what's what's his his rank is like president of the League of Socialists. Yeah, the president of the League of the Sierra or some such thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's got just a a delightful crew of characters all of them brigands kind of uh hiding up on this this mountain waiting for uh waiting for people to drive by rich people to drive by to steal from them essentially to waylay people on the road they have nails scattered along the road characters in this scene have titles like the anarchist and the three men in scarlet ties and uh the rowdy socialist democrat um, so, so you, you kind of enter into this very parliamentarian scene, which is interrupted by the announcement that there's an automobile coming. They, the, the automobile pops a tire on the, on the nails and they go and, uh, kidnap the people who are driving the car. Turns out those people are Jack Tanner and the chauffeur, Henry Straker. What proceeds is 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 uh, basically a cordial abduction with talk about ransom. <laughs> <A> cordial abduction. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. I could have nobody could put it better than that. A cordial abduction is exactly right. Yep, yep. And 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 I mean, Jack seems very very content with being abducted. He can't be found here. He thinks um, he's willing to spend the night with them. He's going to pay them in the morning. They're going to figure out ransoms in the morning. Everyone goes to sleep after a pretty lengthy love story that Mendoza, the leader of these people, tells, which actually winds up being a love story about uh, Henry Straker, uh, Henry Straker's sister. I can't tell if Shaw, like, intended this line to come through this way, but it's such an incredible coincidence that when whichever one of the characters, I forget which one of them says it, one of them says, after it's revealed that Mendoza's in love with Straker's sister, just out of sheer coincidence, one of them goes, what a dramatic coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) I can't, because, you know, Shaw was rebelling against all these highly floofy, overly coincidental plots of the 19th century. So yeah, you yeah. sort of wonder if he's like, yeah, see what see what this sounds like when it happens in other plays. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, all all the kind of comedies of manners and all that. He's 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 writing against those. So yeah, very very convenient circumstances. Um, eventually, they all go to bed and they enter this dream world where we have uh, a whole kind of side dream, or or maybe not a side dream, but it's it's. It's a little hard to connect to some of the plot of the play, but it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, based in the 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 myth of Don Juan or the story structure of Don Juan. We have uh, characters doubling as different characters in this dream. Jack Tanner uh, kind of is is meant to be evoked by Don Juan and is evoked by a character called Anya. Um, more and more of the characters show up. Roebuck shows up as this statue. Um, the devil shows up and Mendoza's playing the devil. So it's this, it's this big kind of shared dream sequence with them all where it's a big part of the play. It's like, you know, 50-ish pages of the play in my script. Um, and it's all this extended debate about 
the purpose of man and and a very kind of if if you read any Nietzsche, Nietzsche is in the air around the socialist time. It's very inspired by that. Um, whether it's the end of 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 humanity to be you know looking for an afterlife, whether it's in heaven or hell, and then deconstructing what heaven or hell is. Um, whether it's the end of humanity to spend a life on Earth and have have the uh, kind of push for being the best that they can be on Earth. It's actually in this act that we get the title of the play um the man or man and superman that's tied to another nietzsche quote yeah, about the, the ubermensch the, the the dream is these characters that we've met jack tanner robuck ramsden uh, mendoza and Anne, but they're playing characters from the don juan myth and they're debating and discussing I don't know. It's it's kind of a Shaw idea, but also the people around Shaw that were influencing him about like the life force and the, the idea yeah. of creative evolution. That man is like one step along this evolution towards whatever we're becoming next. And it, it, he, the Jack Tanner character, he's playing Don Juan expounds upon this idea of the the evolution the life force coming through even all of these societal roles that we play um, especially in marriage and in romance and the way that the life force captures and is sort of the superior force and all of it, it right. the life force is sort of the key phrase from the debate yeah, yeah, life life force hangs in there for 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 the next uh, act as well. So this this whole vision begins to wrap up. The the characters go either to heaven or hell. There's some switching that happens based on based on the characters, and uh, eventually they they all wake up again. Uh, it's the next morning, and uh, they are stumbled upon by the the police force of the region, along with the other members of their party, other members of the the aristocrat aristocratic party. We have Anne showing up. We have Octavius showing up. Uh, Jack Tanner uh, vouches for the brigands, and so they are not arrested, and everyone begins to head off towards where they're going to have to now stay in Spain because they're not going to Nice anymore, or they're they've been waylaid. Then there's a whole other act. The play continues. <laughs> <laughs> and and this this one kind of returns back to the uh, kind of well-made play structure of Anne pursuing Jack and the drama around Violet and Hector Malone and and their relationship. Uh, Violet sends off a letter to the hotel where Hector is staying and uh, sends it with the courier. And it turns out that uh, his father is staying at that hotel instead. Now, they've been trying to hide this relationship from everyone. And his father doesn't know about it. His father's very rich. Um, he's a, a, a very successful Irish businessman who immigrated to America. He shows up. He learns that Violet is in love with his son. And it starts off a whole chain of events where they they come. Their, 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 their relationship comes out into the open for a moment. It looks like they're going to... Uh, be kind of cut out of their inheritance, but they turn that around very uh, handily, mostly at the at the uh, the cleverness of Violet and uh, the brashness of Hector. Um, after which we get the uh, scenes between Anne and Octavius. We 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 uh, get the stage direction that she desires to kind of taunt him again, um, and she uh, lets him down pretty hard that she will not be marrying him anytime soon. I believe um, the line is, "I wouldn't marry you for worlds, Davy." <laughs> yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Not only would you not marry me, you wouldn't marry me if you were paid worlds. <laughs> wow. Yep. 
Yeah, she claims in that interaction that it's it's her mother who's really wanting her to marry Jack and that her father's will was that she married Jack, so she wouldn't want to go against them. Octavius says, that's all right, whatever, I'll survive, I'm a poet. Um, and, uh, and Anne leaves. Mrs. Whitefield comes up, Anne's mother. Octavius says, I understand why you want her to marry Jack. Uh, Mrs. Whitefield says, I don't want her to marry Jack. I don't know what you're talking about. Octavius just doesn't believe it. He can't believe that Anne would ever... <laughs> ever do anything like that and so he leaves then Jack shows up Jack talks to Mrs. Whitefield and she kind of convinces him to marry Anne yeah Um, she's like well I I didn't I I didn't say she should marry Jack but now that you mention it that's kind of a good idea (laughs) yep it's a pretty quick turn for her it is. It's a bit of a bit of a 180. Um, but uh, eventually Jack kind of at least warms up to the idea to the extent that he is angry at being cornered into the idea. <laughs> um, and uh, Anne shows up. Anne and Jack have an extended scene where they kind of hash out uh, their frustrations with each. Well, really just Jack's frustrations with Anne um, and eventually culminating kind of an honest expression of the acknowledgement of this life force, especially Jack brings up over and over that Anne is this life force or this, he feels the pull of the life force towards Anne and uh, he, he's overcome. They both attest to their love for each other, even though they're both severely annoyed with each other by the end of the, <laughs> by the end of the scene. It ends with a a kind of a fainting scene and faints and claims that Jack has proposed to her and she said yes. The whole family's gathering around. It turns out she's faking her her fainting spell. Jack realizes this, pulls her up, and there's this kind of brisk end to the play where Jack says, this is how we're going to get married. You all can send us presents, but we will sell them again. Um, (laughs) I'm going to have this wedding with my clerk. But I'm not going to like it. It ends with this kind of big family uh, all on stage moment where you get I, you get the sense that the family has rallied around this. There's there's uh, <laughs> if a kind of disgruntled acceptance in Jack and I think a uh, a, a joy in Anne that that her at least that her plan has worked. Um, whether or not they are fully in love is for the ages to decide. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know if Shaw, what that would really even mean to Shaw, if they yeah, were in love yeah. or fully in love or, or whatever. So, okay, whew. Yeah, that we was a journey. The, <laughs> the context of Shaw is, of course, enormous, one of the more influential people in the world of literature at large, and then the play is long, so there's the synopsis. As always, we can't ever get to anything, but especially in a play of this gargantuan proportions, we can't get to a lot. I'm interested to start in what Shaw has done so masterfully in layering all of these systems of power on top of the characters and then watching them buck against the systems as one of the ways that Shaw gives off this soapbox uh, kind of uh, commentary throughout the play, right? Peter Hall calls him the great soapbox writer. And this is one of the plays where he really successfully marries humanity and the soapbox. Some of his other plays just aren't as good at that. They're more soapboxy than human. And, and one of the reasons why I think it works in this play is some of the soapbox comes not just from speeches, although there are a heck of a lot of speeches, but from watching the characters actively push against 
power structures that are laid like mantles on them, right? The play opens in one of the more obvious expressions of power that Shaw could have written to begin the play. A man has died and left the guardianship of his unmarried daughters to two other men to share. This is an expression of power. I've handed my power as patriarch over to these two bumbling idiots, both of them very intelligent (laughs) men, but who are about to get played for fools in the power system that has been set up. And being a woman who has been really captured and pinned down ostensibly by the power systems that surround her, right? She has to have a guardian. She's an adult who has a living mother, and she has to right. have a guardian to make decisions for her. The 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 more obtuse of the men, Roebuck Ramsden, says something about, yeah, she's a very bright person, but she's only a woman, you know? Right. But what happens? Anne uses that power system to get what she wants. She's accused by Jack, who is the character that supposedly sees through it all, although he too is bumblingly led along by her through the entirety of the play. But he he sees through it and he says, look at what she's doing. She's using this system. She gets whatever she wants just by claiming it was her mother's will or her father's will or you would never do that to me because you're a guardian. She uses all of that to her advantage. Yeah, and and then you have you have her kind of doing this uh, this complicated dance throughout the play, right? This 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 uh, well or, or comfortability with the power structure that she's in, the knowledge of how to manipulate people to and manipulate people through um, through engagement with them through desire in some instances and and even then she is looking at violet who doesn't do that as much violet is in this very similar power system and she is much more direct uh there's there's a line from uh from Anne about violet which is wouldn't it like she's talking to violet and kind of talking about how she admires her because she's able to get what she wants without this complicated need to be liked at the same time (laughs) or or to be uh yeah to be loved at the same time by the people around that she is that she is working her will against right yeah in Anne and Violet you see a really carefully crafted portrait of two responses to the layering of power on top of you pushing you down and Anne really masterfully turns that power on its head and becomes the more powerful one, right? Jack calls her a boa constrictor, a tiger, right? Now, he's kind of an ass, but... (laughs) So you you feel that about him, but you also sense that he really feels she has the control in the situations despite all the systems around her being at her disadvantage, you would think. So you have that from Anne, and then this other portrait of Violet who simply bucks those systems, who simply says, I'm not going to tell you I got married. I'm not going to tell you who my husband is. You want me to leave? Fine, I'll just leave. I'm not interested in sitting around and talking about it. I've had the talk. I've had the lecture. I'm out of here, right? And these compelling portraits of contrasting uh, ways to buck the system, right? Contrasting versions of what the soapbox might be. Right, right. And you see them, I mean, I think the one of the clearest ones is Octavius and Anne. Um, Octavius is kind of pretty much written, I believe we are to believe that he is essentially written into the will and stated occasionally as someone who Mr. Whitefield wanted her to marry. 
um, uh, wanted Anne to marry. And Anne is just not interested in that. She's she's interested in leading him on somewhat. She's friends with him. There may be some affection there, but it's she's she's not interested in him in that way. Though he is Which like Which is much to the surprise of everybody else. I mean, for, for yeah. the first bunch of the play until Jack discovers that she's really interested in him and runs off to this to Spain, everybody seems to think Anne and Tavy, Tavy is the the friendly nickname for Octavius, are sort of destined to be together to the point where Jack is really trying to talk Tavy out of it for much of the first because of how powerful Anne is, how smart, how clever, how brilliantly she keeps the power, manipulates the world around her. They're talking about the fact that Tavy loves her and how, uh, you know, love will overcome all of this stuff. And, And Jack says, oh, the tiger will love you. There's no love sincerer than the love of food. <laughs> and 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 as as much as 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 you're right, Jack is kind of an ass in this play, and and frequently has these these kind of demeaning analogies for Anne. You see in the play that Anne is just playing with with poor Octavius, um, and lying Robuck, to him. Right? Ramsden too. Yeah, yeah. to the and to the mother. point with I mean, <laughs> yeah, to the point with Roebuck where like she just presents an alternate reality where he's okay with with Jack being a shared guardian and through repeated saying of that phrase gets Roebuck to believe that he was in fact okay with this all along. Well, and it's brilliant, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's brilliant, right? Because Roebuck, Ramsden brings her in and he and Jack are there and they both say to her, we're not going to do a shared guardianship. We hate each other. Um, right. So you have to pick who's going to be the sole guardian. And she brilliantly turns that around and she says to each of them in turn, you know, my father wanted you both to be my guardian. Are you going to reject me as right. your ward? And both one after the other, it sort of shamed into it, kind of has to say, well, no, no, I'm not. Right, and so, right. oh, great, then we're agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, th- and then he even goes further and is like, that when they push it and is like, no, 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 no we're not going to reject you, but you really do have to pick. She's like, you wouldn't put me in the position where I'd have to make that sort of choice to go against my father, would you? Mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, no, no, I guess, I guess not. No. <laughs> Well, yeah, and and so she she's this incredible char- I mean, incredible portrait of a character, no matter who they are, and the way that she becomes kind of the driving force of action in the play, despite Jack being like the hero of the play, whatever that really means, is awesome, and it's all based on. Shaw being sort of challenged by a critic to write a play based on the Don Juan myth and the Don Juan theme of this womanizer, this sort of this this guy that would fall in love with women but not want to marry them, and so you you end up with that person of Jack who really admits from very early in the play that he is indeed in love with Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, but is as totally against marriage, and the Don Juan myth then gets turned on its head, and you watch Don Juan become the prey, and and the predator right. prey thing is not me; it's the text. I mean, it's really described that way, right? And being a boa constrictor, a tiger, as we've said, that's really Jack's conception of marriage and romance: is uh, woman as predator, man as prey. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating reversal. It ties a little bit again into this kind of uh, Nietzschean enlightenment thought around around like uh, the the role of women in society, the role of men in society. But but Jack especially embodies these philosophical thoughts throughout um, this 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 thought of. Um, 
the way society is structured is the women go out and hunt men. <laughs> Um, and, and, and you, you see that in play a little bit, you see that turned on its head in a, a little bit as well. I think Violet and Hector's relationship kind of turns that on their head. You get, you get the really antagonistic kind of prey and preyed upon relationship of Anne and, and, uh, Jack and Octavian or Octavius, but then Violet and Hector's is a little bit more of, of a love story, though Violet is, is this kind of really powerful character in that, in that love story still. Yeah. And then it all kind of ends in the same place because when, when Hector's right. father comes and is, you know, adamantly opposed to their marriage by the end of the scene, you know, a short 20, 30 pages or so, she's got him make, he, he agrees to make sure he consults with her before he purchases any house for them in the future. Right. You know, I mean, it, so it's a very, very quick reversal. And, and to Shaw's credit, though, of course, there's a, a whole world of sexism embedded in the in that that worldview, and it's it's all from the turn of the 20th century. So yeah, it's yeah, it being extremely a dated. To Shaw's credit, the women in the play are given their opportunity to defend themselves. And Anne playing Anna in the Don Juan myth uh, offers a very capable defense of the fact that the reality is that's just how men want to frame the situation so that they can have all the sex they want and never have to take responsibility as a father or husband in the home because women you know, are in a society at the time where they didn't have any power. So Shaw doesn't leave out the ability for characters like Anne to you know, uh, offer an alternate view of the predator prey thing that Jack Turner is so de- Tanner, I'm sorry, is so dedicated to. Yeah, yeah, the play isn't going to pass any Bechtel tests or anything like that. No. But it it, it, <laughs> is, it does present characters that have a a, a strong uh, grip on their reality and and are and are and are put, putting thoughts into the world to contrast the kind of manipulative patriarchal structure that is around them. Right, and so it's the structure, the power structure of the world that I think Shaw is playing with. That's where we started this conversation after the synopsis. And that continues into the second act where the power structure shifts even a little bit more and you start to look at class because uh, Jack Tanner has this chauffeur who's brilliantly witty and they end up in this sort of dialogue about the benefits of like gentlemanly education versus like practical sort of trade school type education from the time Uh of of the chauffeur and he's he's you know better prepared for society and and happier and all this stuff about class that they go on and on and again there's these power layers and Jack Tanner's eventually driven away by by learning that Anne is the prey and he is now or he is the prey to Anne's predator there's a great book that right. they keep talking about the the bees and and all that and it carries out into the hillsides of Spain where there's a great line about power the brigands say that they're you know we're Briggins, so we robbed the rich. And Jack Tanner says, I'm a gentleman, I robbed the poor. And right. then the reason why Act 3, the Don Juan in Hell, becomes, I think, so crucial to what's happening in the play is that Shaw has taken these characters out of the world of their incredible layered mantle, heavy power structures that 
control so much of what they do and place them on as level a playing field as he could. And at the time, the most level playing field he could imagine was that they're all dead and they're in <laughs> hell where the titles mean no more. I mean, literally, one of the first things that happen is they have to talk about the fact that age doesn't mean anything anymore. Family ties don't mean anything anymore. So yes, your father is coming, but he, he's not your father. He died actually younger than you died in your life, so you're actually older and wiser than him. You should just think of him as another dude. And yeah, there's the devil here, but he doesn't seem to have any like real authority about what's going on. So he imagines this group in a totally power, power structure-less scenario where Truly, as Shaw would imagine, if that society existed, it would be only about the competition of ideas or the competition of desires, basically. And that is what he imagines as heaven and hell. Heaven being the place of the competition of ideas and hell being a place where it's all pleasure and beauty and love and desire. Or the pursuit of those pursuit things. Pursuit of those, yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the lines the the lines between those two realms are are very porous, apparently. We there's there's this great set of lines around but but isn't there like an inseparable void between heaven and hell? Um and and the response is no, no, they're 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 pretty much close, but there is there it's the same way as like someone at a at a um at a rodeo, that's not the word, but at a bullfight would never appear in the, the halls of parliament or something like that. There's an inseparable void between those two spaces for the people who inhabit those two spaces. Not one that can't be traversed, but one that you will not see a fan of a bullfight in a parliament building. Um, so, so yeah, there's the, 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 the pursuit of ideas, the, the pursuit of passions um, uh, are, are really the guiding principles of, of the different regions. The, 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 the debate takes place in hell, where they pursue passions, but uh, the character don't all stay there by the end of it. Some of them leave, or some one of them comes from heaven uh, and stays in hell, and another one, or another one goes to heaven from hell. Right, and and you know the specific philosophy and idea that Shaw is putting forth is is it it, it leaves some to be desired nowadays. In fact. A lot of the reviewers of the 2015 National Theater production mentioned that, that the play does, we imagine, did a lot for an audience for whom some of what Shaw was putting forth was fairly revolutionary thinking, right? The, the portrait of a woman pursuing a man the portrait of a woman not being obligated to name who her husband was, the, the, the portrait of gentlemen who didn't really even like being gentlemen, right? All of this, these ideas and, and, and these ideas about marriage that would have been shocking perhaps back then and very modern, they just don't seem that way today, but the, the modernity of what is being discussed is kind of the engine that drives the piece, and it ends up being one of the reasons why the third act feels a little like just tire spinning. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to decouple the the time frame that this play was written in with with socialism on the rise, with a restructure of society, re restructure of wealth happening in Europe. It's hard, like like for instance, the drama uh, or not the drama, but the comedy of the chauffeur is in the fact that all of these rich people who who uh, are are you know have a lot of money, a lot of wealth, and don't do anything are extremely dependent upon 
the chauffeur who drives the vehicle for them to the extent that the kind of uh, the, the the parliamentary court of the Sierra Nevadas uh, has learned to not take the cars that they steal because they don't know how to drive them. They drive them off cliffs when they try to drive them. So the chauffeur, the working class man, the person who, who has this kind of working class education is in fact the one on whom they are all resting. Now that's that's a that's a aspect that is a little lost on our current moment. Um, that 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 is specific to the time, specific to socialism, specific to revolution, revolution in the air. That that is that is that would have been really um, pressing the envelope at the time to have this prominent of a role for these characters on stage for people to go see. And uh, and then of course sort of the Nietzschean idea of the Superman that we are ultimately evolving towards this uber being right and and right. Shaw then goes on to propose that the driver behind that evolution is actually women and not men and that would have been a very progressive idea in 1903 and 1915 when the full thing was finally staged and nowadays it's an idea that seems sexist right it seems like an idea from 100 years ago even though this was Shaw balking the society of his time which would have said that men are the primary drivers of everything of course they are they're the patriarchs Right, right, and 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 yeah. So it's 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 turning a lot of things on its head. Uh, the, the even down to the certainly the social structures that it's turning on its head, but also the comedy styles that it's turning on its head. All of the kind of comedy of manners sorts of things. Um, all of a sudden, there's a bunch of working class people in in the plays, which which was not really not really the thing in like importance of being earnest, right? Like yeah, or the, or the 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 portraits of the working class folks were more about. The, their sort of comic stoogery rather yeah. than their their motivations uh, a, a positive portrait a portrait of the 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 the, the honor of workmanship and the portrait of their power. Malone at the end of the play is this self-made business person who comes in and wields enormous power at the end of the play to the point that the family uh, finds out that he's a billionaire and are like, oh, we should make friends with you. Um, so so, so that, that sort of representation is changing too in, in Shaw. And Shaw um, uh, would, would have that kind of uh, background being, you know, an, an Irish playwright, uh, kind of, uh, you know, basically a nobody who's built himself up into into theater and into writing plays yeah i want to give you just a taste of a line that i think is the perfect example of both shaw shining through a little bit as a playwright in some of his ideas and feelings about the status of the world uh shaw shining through as a comedian um as some great comic writing and then also kind of the tone of the the primary character the hero jack tanner so this is a line that tanner delivers just after it's revealed that his best friend tavy's sister violet is pregnant and they have revealed this by saying something has happened to violet tavy and it might be even worse than if she had died it's she's pregnant outside of marriage and octavius collapses and says what a frightful thing and jack tanner says well, i'll just note that shaw says with angry sarcasm right dreadful appalling worse than death as ramsden says what would you not give tavy to turn it into a railway accident with all her bones broken or something equally respectable and deserving of sympathy 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that's very funny. That mm-hmm. is a balk of the way that society would have treated a pregnant woman outside of marriage at the time. And truthfully, it still is kind of a balk of the way our society treats pregnant women outside of marriage like 100 years later. Another great line of one of the women characters, uh, this again, this is Violet. She's come in and she's finally revealed that she has indeed been married uh, throughout this whole time, even as people have been insulting her for her terrible decisions. And she says, now I claim my right as a married woman not to be insulted. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that whole scene is just uh, another reversal, right? Because because Tanner the whole time has had quotes like the one you read, where he's he's trying to take Violet's side and be very progressive, be very white knighty, and he kind of uh, runs up and says to her, "I think you're perfect. You're fine. Like it's fine that you've done this. I think it's noble of you to do it." And she says, first of all, you know about this, and you all have been talking about me behind my back. Second of all." Please don't throw me in the same boat as you. <laughs> Your appalling <laughs> ideas. <Yeah. laughs> so that, but that leads us to like Jack Tanner as the hero. One of kind of the driving descriptions of him is actually the line that ends ends the play and may explain why the play is as long as it is. Is that he is a talker. Jack Tanner is a rhetorician. He is a speech giver, and he's obviously a stand-in for Shaw himself. Many, many people many times over have said that, and Shaw was a great rhetorician and great speech giver. I don't know that this is true at all. This is just something that occurred to me. I I don't have any reason to believe this other than I saw similarities. I wonder if... Lin-Manuel Miranda's portrait of Hamilton, the, the <laughs> character that he chooses to create of Hamilton, is is at, in any way allegorical or in memory or in respect of one of the famed characters, Jack Tanner of Man and Superman. The, sh- the, uh, the way that Hamilton is portrayed in the musical of using words to overwhelm opponents, his radical revolutionary ideas, uh, the kind of sarcastic wit that he uses caustically to get his way through the entirety of the play. I mean, the similarities to me are striking. It's true. I hadn't thought about that before, but absolutely. I mean, uh, Jack, Jack has just this, this torrent of, of rhetoric that he, that he throws around and, and mostly gets his way with, right? Like to the, to the point that, uh, I mean, Roebuck, for instance, hates him at the start of the play. Just, just like can't stand the man or anything he believes in, and he first of all will not be or Tanner will not be daunted. He he shows up in the room and just continues to talk to him. Then he gets his book thrown in the trash at one point. Just continues having this conversation with him. Won't be daunted. Continues to throw his ideas at him. But not only that, by the end of the play, there's almost this camaraderie between them. Uh, yeah, I think Roebuck- he says it's it's a little under the table. You have to sort of catch it amidst every all the all the other words. In the play, but yeah. I think that Roebuck actually approves of his marriage to Anne by the end of the play. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just like one or two lines or something like that. But there is there is like a, a kind of acknowledgement of each other, acknowledgement of what they've been through. So it's really the the only character who can stand up to Jack is Anne, and Anne is the one that kind of consistently can derail his torrent 
of 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 logic and reasoning. And she does it in a really specific way that upsets Jack and that becomes kind of the comic button at the end of the play. He'll rattle off some long speech about the futility of marriage, the life force, the whatever he's talking about at the time, the failure of romance, blah, 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 blah. It's probably a three-page speech both times. And she she at the end, she just goes something like, the first time around, she says something like, you really are going to have to get into politics one of these days. You sure know how to talk. Right. <laughs> and he goes, talking is all I'm doing to you, talking. And it's like, yeah, dude, you're just talking. And then you're the very end talking. of the play is, as Jackson said in his synopsis, he goes on this long speech about how their wedding and marriage is going to be conducted. It's going to flaunt all these norms. They're getting married at the courthouse in casual dress. Don't send us gifts. We're not going on a trip. And everybody's like, oh, Jack, stop it. And Anne says, oh, let him go on talk. I love to hear him talk. And that's the comic <laughs> button of the play. He goes, talking? (laughs) It is a play that is very about talking, talking, talking. Words, words, words. Yeah, yep. Repeat. Yeah, absolutely. And and ideas, big ideas for characters and characters kind of manipulating those ideas, pursuing those goals, and trying to trying to bring about an actualization of them in the world around them. Yeah, and it you can the the play's plot functions beginning to end without Don Juan in hell. Um, yeah. I actually read it one time through, you know, I did several times through as always and read all the reviews and the synopses. And so I read it one time through without the third act. It went much smoother. The plot works beginning to end because really the third act has nothing to do with the plot really at all. <laughs> yeah. But it's really where the the centerpiece for the character portrait that is the most fulfilling part of the play comes out. And I really think it's because of the incredible way Shaw has set these characters amidst landscapes of power. And then in order to portray the fullness of the characters and the competition of ideas puts them into a world where power and status don't mean anything. And that's where you see sort of the most bare version of themselves. Now, I don't know why anybody would watch the third act without the rest of the play. I mean, I know that people do it as a one act, but why? Right, it must just be for the the way the words are structured. Yeah, <laughs> they are, I mean, it's, it's incredibly yeah. well written. In fact, Shaw is compared to Shakespeare a lot, not because he wrote in verse or anything, but because his, his lines and his dialogue is so incredibly well written that like with Shakespeare, if you pay attention to the lyricism, the punctuation, and you clip along, the dialogue says itself. I mean, it, uh, Jackson and I were reading some lines back and forth, and it's like, there's really only, there's one way to read this the right way yeah <laughs> like there's with a mu- so much shakespeare yeah. there's a music to it that begins to come out especially i mean especially by virtue of it there being so much of it you have to kind of like let yourself be washed over in it and once you do the there is almost like an internal meter it's not it's not as much as like an iambic pentameter or something like that but there's a music to how the these are done and and it and it does serve the overall plot the overall emotion and the, and the crescendo of the play yeah, I've, I've mentioned before, you know, I'm just not much of an actor anymore. It's not what I do. But I have some characters that I would really love to play. And this is going to be added to my list of characters that I would really love never to play. <laughs> I have no desire to play task. Jack Tanner and memorize <laughs> this stinking play. Oh, not, man. Not for all the world. I mean, that I cannot imagine the hours and 
hours of memorization to do this play, which is hours and hours long. I mean, if you do the full yeah. thing, it's like between four and six hours long. Yeah. Peter Hall talked about like when they did it at the National Theater, they had to call it an event and not a play because it was so long they couldn't really sell it to their audiences as a play. It had to be a, an event. Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd need a whole night to do this play. <laughs> you need a long intermission or three. And, and yeah, three, <laughs> several, several lengthy intermissions to get through this thing. I think that's about all the time that we have for this play. This play was a, a lot of fun to read. It was a mammoth to read, but boy, there was so there's just so much in it and so much that we have not gotten to. As I was trying to synopsize this play, I was like, oh boy, there's that, that subplot that I uh, can't, can't focus on that. Um, so there's so much more conversation to have. We We'd love to keep having the conversation with you. If there's anything in Man and Superman that you would like to talk about, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. Oh, and also, you could tell us how on earth Shavian got the name to be... <laughs> Yeah, really. <laughs> referencing Shaw plays. You should you should let us know about that too. Well, hey, if you like this episode or any of our other episodes, please recommend it to your family and friends. The podcast grows and grows, and you're the reason why. So continue to help us out doing that. You can send anybody you're trying to recommend our way. They can find us on Podbean. They can find us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. An easy way though is just to like us on Facebook, because then you'll you'll see us through on your feed. Every Monday we'll post a new episode, a link that you can just click and play. You'll also see the ads for what episodes are coming up come out there as well. So we would love to see you over on our Facebook. And we hope that you will be joining us for next week begins our journey into ancient Greek theater. Yes, yes. Get excited for that. I am. And until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast. We'll see you.